0: As most of you know, Meredith and I worked at Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicago area for five years up until this past year when we moved back home to California. And each year at Willow, at the beginning of August, there would be this huge event on campus that, again, many of you might be familiar with, the Global Leadership Summit, or as it's now known, the Global Leadership Conference, because of reasons we aren't going to get into right now. But now that I think about it, aren't totally unrelated to what we're going to be talking about. But each year, the summit would take over the building, and you'd see tables stacked with ID badges and notebooks, posters with the speakers' giant faces on them, pithy, inspiring quotes on window decals all over campus, portable Pepsi-branded fridges filled with drinks, all the things that needed to get set up before the 10,000-plus people arrived on Thursday morning. And the largest open space on campus, where usually there were tables that people would sit at to eat their food from the food court on the weekends— It got transformed into one of those spaces that exist at every conference, where different businesses are selling stuff to the attendees. So there would be Christian radio stations and church software companies and always, always at least one Christian movie that was upcoming and guaranteed to inspire your congregation to new heights of devotion. As my description might have hinted at, I loathed. This part of the summit loathed it because the line between genuinely trying to help your church by providing valuable goods and services and making as much money as I can selling Christian branded junk isn't always as bright as maybe it should be. And every year as I walked through this space, this passage from John that we are looking at today would pop into my head because the parallels are just so clear. This is from John 2 verse 13. Since the Jewish Passover was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers sitting there. Having made a whip of rope, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the oxen. And he said to those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, this temple has been under construction 46 years. You will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. So then when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So Jesus sees these people selling things and profiting off the life of the temple. And he gets mad, like real mad, which is one of the reasons this is one of my favorite stories from the Bible. I told Meredith that this week I was preaching this, this passage was mine. Uh, It prevents us from having a picture of Jesus as this nice, serene, unruffled, kind of detached from reality, just floating above it all, sort of being Jesus got mad. Later on in John 11 comes the verse, Jesus wept. John consistently reminds us that Jesus was a human being who wept until snot was running down his face and got so mad that his spit and sweat went flying all over the temple grounds. He had a body, he had emotions. And that means following Jesus is not about serenely rising above it all, just being nice and gentle all the time. Because sometimes life human life, bodily life on this planet, requires something different. It does raise this question, though. What is Jesus so mad about? It can't just be about trade going on, because practically speaking, the money had to get transferred into an acceptable form of currency, because the Roman currency of the time was stamped with the face of the emperor, who claimed to be the ruler of the whole world and a divine figure in his own right— And buying animals sacrificed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true ruler of the world, with coins dedicated to the exaltation of a challenger to his throne, it understandably didn't sit right. And these people who had come to the temple, they had made journeys of hundreds, thousand miles. Bringing a lamb along for the ride just wasn't a practical option. So the commerce here needs to be happening in order for worship to happen. So then what is it that Jesus is objecting to? Why does he get so mad? Some scholars believe it's just about the location that Jesus is zealous. As the passage says that the holy space of the temple be preserved. This is dedicated, holy ground and, and money changing hands here. Well, that just can't be done. Marianne My Thompson, whose commentary Meredith and I have been leaning on heavily in preparing for these sermons, she emphasizes this point. I actually don't agree, though. I think there's something different going on. Notice who Jesus yells at in verse 16. And yes, I imagine he yelled here, not just like, I say, good man, would you terribly mind moving away from my whip and run along now, please? Good show. Good show. But look at who Jesus yells at to get out of his father's house. It's those who are selling doves. We find an example of who might be sacrificing a dove in Leviticus 14. In verse 10, it lays out a particular sacrifice. This one is actually for someone who has been healed of leprosy. And it says this, On the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish, And a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, which would be something like two and a half gallons, of choice flour. And it lays out what the priest would do with all that sacrifice. But if we keep reading, you get to verse 22. And it says this, But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, he shall take one male lamb and one-tenth of an ephah of choice flour, which would be a little less than a gallon now, And also two turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, it may be a coincidence that the ones John tells us Jesus is yelling directly at are the ones who are selling to the poorest worshipers, who are making money off the desire of the poor to come and worship their God. It might be a coincidence, but I doubt it. I think Jesus is mad about injustice and that these people have co-opted the temple and worship of the living God so as to make a profit off the poor. That is something to get mad about. It's not the location of the commerce that's happening that makes Jesus mad. It is the quality or the content of that commerce. And you may have heard a sermon to that effect at some point along the way, that the church should be a place free from greed and oppression and injustice, that the poor and rich alike ought to be able to worship God, and people shouldn't try to take advantage of the church for profit. And I agree with all that. And I planned on preaching a sermon to that effect, and and then saying that, of course, also we should be people who care about justice outside the walls too, but mostly Jesus is making his point inside the walls, so to speak. And then I got a little curious, as I am sometimes wont to do, about the verse the disciples remember. It's from Psalm 69. And I'm going to read, just for context, verses 7 through 9. And this is translated by John Goldengay, one of my Old Testament professors from Fuller. And this is from his really, really excellent commentary on the Psalms that I would highly recommend. But he translates Psalm 69, verses 7 to 9, like this. Because it is on account of you, speaking to God, That I have borne reviling. This is why I wanted to use his translation because it has great words like reviling instead of mockery. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my relatives, an alien to my mother's offspring. Because, and this is the verse that the disciples remember, because it is passion for your house that has destroyed me. The reviling of people who revile you has fallen on me. The verse the disciples connect with Jesus's actions, and John is probably speaking of the disciples looking back on this event and seeing its meaning after the crucifixion. The verse they find meaning in speaks to passion, zeal for God's house, the temple, and that it has led to this person's destruction. This isn't zeal consumes me as a metaphor for the great depth of feeling I have, like I'm consumed with passion. This is zeal consumes me as in it leads to my destruction, my death. But how exactly does that apply here? Because it is not Jesus's great passion for the temple that winds up getting him killed. We hear a whole lot more in the gospels about his words and actions outside of the temple, winding up, getting him killed. How is it that passion for God's house destroys him? This is what I was curious about. Now it is clear that Jesus is playing around with the meaning of temple here. Like when he starts talking about his body being a temple that will be rebuilt in three days and the people don't understand what he's talking about, obviously, because how could they, but is it zeal for Jesus's body that destroys him? Like that doesn't totally line up either. So as I looked into it, I think there's one more piece to the puzzle here that makes the picture a lot clearer, that helps us understand what Jesus is doing. And to see it, we need to understand something about how the ancient world and specifically the ancient Near East, the nations in and around Israel, how they looked at the world. The scholar John Walton points out in a discussion of Genesis 1 that in the ancient world, temples were often seen as microcosms of the universe as a whole, as they understood it. And this is certainly true of the temple in Israel. He writes, the courtyard of the temple where if you know your Old Testament uh, details, (laughs) and I'm not expecting you to, there is a water basin and pillars in the outer courtyard of the temple. And so the courtyard represented the cosmic spheres outside of the organized cosmos, the sea and pillars, as in pillars holding up the sky. They kind of thought of the sky as a giant disk that was held up by mountains and pillars. So the outer courtyard of the temple is representing this reality. The antechamber of the temple, where, again, if you remember your Old Testament temple details, there is bread and lampstands sitting in the antechamber. So he says, it held the representations of light and food. And then the veil separating the holy place and the holy of holies, it separated the heavens and the earth, the place of God's presence from the place of human habitation. So for Israelites, the temple represents the universe. But Walton argues that Genesis 1 takes it a step further, that the creation story in Genesis 1 parallels very closely how temple building stories, and there were lots of those, how they were written in the ancient Near East, in Egypt or Assyria. And I'll go into more detail on this point in this week's Backdrop podcast if you want to hear more about that. So Walton says that what we have in Genesis 1 Is a story about the world being created as a temple for God. The most central truth, he writes, to the creation account is that this world is a place for God's presence. It is a temple. That's the main point of Genesis 1. The world is God's temple. That's why we have verses like Isaiah 66, one and two, which says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? This is why God is initially resistant to a temple being built for him in the first place because he already has one, the world. So in this light, there's an added dimension to Jesus's actions. It's not an action directed at one specific location, the holy space of a temple or a church in our case. Jesus is using the symbolic richness of that temple space, a place that represents the world as a whole. He's using that symbolic space to demonstrate God's passion for justice throughout God's creation. His zeal is for God's house, the world which was created to be God's temple, but is now filled with greed and oppression and injustice. Jesus's actions then are not just a call to us to eradicate oppression from the church, although that certainly is important too, but to whip out oppression anywhere it can be found because God's house, the world, should not be a place of injustice. There's a long history of the church separating out these two spheres. Martin Luther actually built a theology around there being basically a secular realm and a spiritual realm. In the early 20th century in America, churches largely split into those focused on the social gospel, that is doing good out in the world, and the saving of souls for heaven gospel, that is getting people to believe the right things and be in relationship with God that way but the two cannot be separated like that because Jesus does not recognize a secular space and a holy space. John says that he is the ladder in chapter one, the ladder that links heaven and earth, that ensures God's presence is everywhere, that ensures that what applies to the temple applies to all creation. Where Martin Luther got it wrong, Martin Luther King Jr., as so often, got it right. And and do forgive his gendered language here he was writing a long time ago. Religion operates not only on the vertical plane, but also on the horizontal. It seeks not only to integrate men with God, but to integrate men with men and each man with himself. This means at bottom that true religion is a two-way road. On the one hand, it seeks to change the souls of men and thereby unite them with God. On the other hand, It seeks to change the environmental conditions of men so that the soul will have a chance after it is changed. Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion in need of new blood. That is what Jesus is doing in clearing out the temple. And it does destroy him because those in power, those doing the oppressing, they don't take kindly to being called on it, then or now. And that's what John is doing by putting this story right up front in chapter two, with the echoes of Genesis one from chapter one still in our minds. We talk about doing justice here at Pomona Valley Church, not because we want to be good liberals in 21st century Western society, but because Jesus does not let us separate out following him and doing justice because our zeal for God's house, the world God created to be God's temple compels us to do justice. Doing justice, of course, takes courage. Sometimes as Jesus shows us, it can destroy a person, but courage isn't all that it takes. And we want to spend the rest of our time today being equipped to see and then do justice injustice is rarely simple. Meredith and I are fans of the TV show The Good Place, which some of you may be familiar with. In a nutshell, if you're not, it's about the afterlife and people trying to be better people. And one of its jokes last season was how a person just trying to buy a tomato inescapably tapped into this global web of injustice that made it impossible for them to actually make an ethical salad choice. We aren't quite that fatalistic about it, but injustice is often very complicated and it's hard to know what the right next thing to do is. And so now Meredith is going to orient us to a framework for how we might approach injustice and then lead us through some reflection.